0: Well, good morning, Gospel Hope family, and welcome back to another segment of our series on In the Waiting. We'll be picking up today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. While you're reaching for your Bibles and turning to our uh, text uh, for this morning, I want to just kind of share with you some of the things that have been going on in my heart uh, over the last several days. Um, I fielded a lot of phone calls, and I've been involved in a lot of conversations, both verbal and some, obviously, social media-based. And I've been really intrigued by the two different extremes that I've felt or seen in some of those conversations. On one hand, I've heard from Bible gospel-believing believers who believe that our best posture in this time is to preach the gospel and not get involved in social issues and just wait for Jesus to come and clean all of this up because that's the only thing that's really going to have the best effect. On the other end of the spectrum, there are also believers who are deeply affected, emotionally moved, and angry, and fighting back the urge to want to pick up a brick or something else and go and, yeah, be involved in some of the protest or even rioting. Now we know that neither of those responses is the biblical response. Mind you, I said neither. Not the one that says we'll sit on the couch and wait for Jesus to come, nor the one that says it wants to pick up a brick and express their full anger. Well, why is that not the proper approach? The analogy that came to mind was that of the Olympics and how we, as not only a culture or a country, but also as the world, grow to anticipate the Olympic Games every four years. And as we anticipate the commencement of the Olympic Games, there are varying degrees of waiting that look different depending on how close to the action a person may be. For instance, those of us that have absolutely no intentions of attending the Olympics will not work or save money to purchase tickets. Our primary waiting will look like just waiting for the event to come around. We'll sit on our sofas, pick up our remotes and turn on the television at the appropriate time to catch the event of our choosing. But yet cities who know that they're going to be hosting the Olympics have begun working years in advance in preparation to host the world in their cities. They're waiting also, but their waiting look quite different. They've been working at the same time. But if you narrow the camera lens on those who participate in the Olympic Games even more closely, you'll note that the athletes are also working. They're working in a way that would suggest that they've got to compete tomorrow. They aren't waiting for the games to come before they get in shape. They're working right now. I believe that that analogy of the athlete is the one that best matches we who are waiting for the return of our Lord. Yes, when Jesus comes and uh, takes his people, when Jesus comes and corrects the evils and the injustices of his world, that's the big game. But in the meantime, the gospel calls us to work, to work out our faith in fear and trembling. So today I wanna to talk to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 but we're gonna learn some things about the nature of the gospel and how it should be working in our lives while we wait. I'll capture it for you in this way. Waiting on the Lord is intended to teach us how to work out the gospel, not just wait for Jesus to come who is the perfect presentation and the completion of the gospel. We should be waiting in a way where we actually work out the gospel. Well now, is this just a topic? Is this just a stump? or a platform that i want to hammer home or is this something that is readily evident in the scriptures and that's what we need to go now but before we do that let's pray together father god we come before you this morning thank you in praising you for the great grace wonder of your word that is perpetually relevant that speaks throughout all generations that paints a perfect picture of your faithfulness not just in the past but also lord god your trustworthiness for the future we thank you for the sending of your son and we thank you for the sending and the giving of your Holy Spirit. And we ask now, O oh God, that we would be fully dependent on you to walk us through the pages of Scripture and give us a proper picture for how to aim the gospel at the situations that we have before us today. Thank you, Jesus. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, as I said, to First Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm gonna walk you through, and we're gonna have three basic ideas that help us understand what it means to work out the gospel during the time of our waiting. Let's read. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of god in the midst of much conflict these first two verses help us to see something about the nature of the gospel and i'm going to refer to it as this the grittiness of the gospel what is the grittiness of the gospel well to fully appreciate what i mean by the grittiness of the gospel key in on the words there that paul says at the end of verse two you know that we declared the gospel to you in the midst of much conflict. Well, what conflict is he talking about? What are the conditions that he's referring to uh, that were occurring that happened in their lives that fell out on them over at Philippi? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 16 and there are several moments in Scripture that we need to walk through that really paint a picture of what Paul was talking about in the way that they were treated and the great conflict that they had to preach the gospel through. Now, follow these carefully. First and foremost, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 16, Paul tells us that therefore, they're sailing from Troas. we ran a straight course to Samothros, and uh, the next day came to Neapolis. Now, this is an important pivot in the scriptures because the scriptures say that prior to this moment, Paul and others were committed to actually going somewhere else. But the Lord sent a vision of a person at Macedonia appealing to them and begging them to come. In other words, this was not the course of action or the route that they were actually planning to go before the Lord radically interrupted it through this revelation that they need to go to Macedonia. And so here they are changing their course. One of the first things I want you to note is how open and sensitive Paul and those who are carrying the gospel are to this change in course, this course correction. They are willing to leave behind their original agenda and pivot and do and go after the means or the ways that God has designed for them to go. Uh, Look at this carefully. Uh, The gospel message not only is one that goes against the grain of the prevailing culture, but it will oftentimes may go against the grain of our own personal preferences and agenda. Sometimes through the gospel and our sensitivity to it, God will move us to go in a way that we might not normally go. And we see this happening in the life of Paul and his cohorts here in verse 11 in chapter 16. But there's even more. When Paul goes there to preach the gospel at Philippi, his custom was in every new city to go to the synagogue and then to preach and to share and to reason with those fellows there in the synagogue and that's where he would start his evangelistic campaigns. But when we read through from verses 11 through 15 we don't see the appearance of a synagogue because there was not a great Jewish presence in that particular city. It required at least 10 Jewish men or heads of household to validate the having of a synagogue so obviously that wasn't there. So the Bible tells us that in verses 12 through 13 that Paul and those with him decided to go by the riverside where there were women praying. This also would have been a change in course. Once again, Paul didn't have a chance to do ministry his regular way of going into a synagogue. And here it is, the gospel and the the, the pull of the gospel is leading him to maybe go against the grain of his traditional way of doing things. But nonetheless, he engages with the women and shares the gospel. And what does this tell us about the gospel? The gospel, once again, has a certain grit, where it goes against the grain of what is normal in that particular segment of society. Because what we also learn here is that the gospel calls Paul to establish a relationship with Lydia. He shares a relationship with her, and Lydia is not the typical kind of person that Paul may have been uh, sharing the gospel with in some of his previous missionary journeys. But again, the gospel compels us because it has grit to sometimes go against the grain. And going against the grain will cause us to build relationships outside of cultural norms. It'll also call us to call out unrighteousness when unrighteousness has become the cultural norm. What do I mean? In verses 16 through 24, Paul and others are walking after having shared the gospel with Lydia And there is a young slave girl who is crying out behind them that these men have come to preach the gospel, to preach the words of the Most High God, it says there in verse 17. And then the scriptures tell us that she did this for many days. And then it says that Paul became greatly annoyed in verse 18 and turned and said, uh, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And she and the demon came out that very hour. In verse 19 but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone they seized paul and silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities in other words this type of slavery divination and abuse was a cultural norm but the gospel compelled paul to call it out even though his primary business was to go to a synagogue share with some of the notable jews Even though his normal course of business at this point was to go to the household of Lydia in the course of doing what he normally does, the gospel compels him to call out unrighteousness, even though unrighteousness is already a cultural norm. The Bible goes on to tell us that in verse 25, that after Paul had done this, he obviously was taken before the city leaders, the magistrates and was thrown in prison. Verse 25 tells us that after Paul was thrown in prison, something interesting happens. They aren't there complaining or licking their wounds. They do something else that is quite countercultural. You know what it is? In verse 25, the Bible says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Here are these men who came, seemingly not against their own wishes, but it wasn't a part of their original plan to come to this place. They've shared the gospel in this untraditional manner. They've had some unscheduled encounters, and now found themselves in the unlikely place of prison. But while there, they are actually involved in praise and worship. You see, the gospel will all of us also compel us to have praise in the midst of pain and deep disappointment. But guess what else the gospel will do if you look at verse 26? At the time that the other prisoners heard the praise, the Bible says that the doors of the prison were open and the chains fell off, and those who were there were fleeing the prison, but the jailer was about to kill himself. And what did the apostle Paul do? In the midst of all this pandemonium, he has great presence of mind, and he also has great peace about himself, looking at verse 26. Everyone was doing their own thing, but Paul looked at the Philippian jailer and told him not to kill himself. Now, what's interesting about that is that the Philippian jailer is a citizen of the host culture that is responsible to this interruption to gospel sharing and them being actually thrown in prison. The cultural norm in this moment might have been to go ahead and let this guy kill himself. He's positioned himself as an opponent to my own personal agenda. But no, the gospel has grit. It's even able to call us to go against what might be our natural instincts in that moment. What the scriptures tell us is that Paul turned to that man and actually had compassion. And this is one of the next things that the gospel, the grit of the gospel, can do in our lives. It calls us to have compassion in the midst of cultural indifference when that might be the mode of the day. But then what happens in verses 35 through 40 I find to be most compelling about the gritty nature of the gospel. In verses 35 through 40, the scriptures tell us that after the magistrates and city leaders had learned of the salvation that had happened at Lydia's household, had learned of how the jail doors had flung open and what had happened in and around the lives of Paul, it says that they sent message asking these men to leave out secretly. And I want you to hear Paul's words in response to the magistrates' request that they go out privately or secretly. In verse 35 Paul says, or the, the book tells us this in uh, in Acts 16. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent, uh, uh, saying, let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Listen to this. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison and do they want to put us out secretly? No indeed, there's an exclamation point in my Bible, no indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans and they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Quite a compelling event. I mean, you would think that Paul finally we're free from prison. Why wouldn't he just take the money and run and go on about his business? But there's something about the bold and grittiness of the gospel that Paul says that, that they had over in First Thessalonians. He said, we were bold to declare the gospel amidst much conflict. He's sitting there and he says, I'm not going out secretly. You have unjustly and publicly beaten us. We're not just going to limp out of town. Come and get us. What does this tell us? It tells us that the gospel calls for bold action in the midst of injustice. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. It's obvious that the gospel, according to the way we see Paul's and Silas's lives shaped there in Acts chapter 16, it's obvious that the gospel is able to give us what I would call a countercultural courage. But countercultural courage and that kind of boldness could result in us being a loose cannon if we don't have something else to go with it and so once again while the gospel does give this uncharacteristic boldness through the holy spirit it gives us this uncharacteristic boldness based on the very nature of what the gospel is The Bible doesn't call us to, again, be loose cannons, even though we are to call to have a countercultural boldness that is willing to do things that others are not willing to do and go ways that others are not willing to go, knowing that God is with us. Well, what are those other things? First Thessalonians chapter two tells us, look at verses three through six In verses three through six, the scriptures say, uh, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or from any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who test our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles." In these four or five verses, verses three through six, I want you to notice how Paul seems to almost negatively define what they positively came to do. There are multiple moments in there. There are seven negative affirmations. He says we didn't come for error, impurity, uh, an attempt to deceive. We didn't come to please men. We didn't come for flattery. We didn't come with the pretext for greed. Now, why does Paul spend all that time going through that, defining what they did not come to do? Well, that's because the same gospel that brings about great boldness, as as we saw in Acts chapter 16, also brings about great gravity. And this is our second point. The gospel has a great gravity. When we talk about gravity, I want you to consider what Paul says God did in entrusting them with the, with the gospel. It says here in verses 3 and 4 that it was God who we have been approved by and who also tests our hearts. When we think about the kind of test that God conducts on our hearts, I want you to think more like a building inspector than you would a college professor. You see, a professor tests us to see how much we know. Can we recite and regurgitate and demonstrate that we know the information on the test? But a building inspector isn't looking for the recitation of information. A building inspector is looking for flaws. He's looking for not just flaws to point them out, but flaws that would damage our fitness to occupy a structure. And then what else uh, does a building inspector do? Not only point out the flaws but also gives us the remedy to fix them. You see the Lord knows that we are not perfect and He indeed tests our hearts. These men's hearts had been tested. Do they have the kind of gravity necessary to be entrusted with the gospel? Now you and I have also been entrusted with the gospel and you had better believe me that the same gospel that has gravity in the lives of the apostles also is designed to have that same gravity in us. The Lord wants us to have weight. He wants us to have maturity. The gospel is in us not as a static message of information that we just regurgitate in times of difficulty, but the gospel is a message that is at work within us looking for and rooting out areas that make us unfit representatives. What do I mean? Uh, First of all, do we know what the gospel is? In Romans chapter one, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then it says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the gospel is not only the message of our conversion, but you've heard us say before, it's also the message of our ongoing conformity to the image of Christ. You see, the, 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 the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. One of the gravity, part of the gravity of the gospel, part of its great weight in our lives, is that when we, when we come to Christ, when we confess him, when we know him, the gospel continues to search our lives, or the Spirit of the Lord does, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Listen to this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself, forgive me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. These things have, uh, has God revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person, which is in him? so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So when we come to know Christ and we trust the gospel and we are converted, we are conformed, guess what's happening? The spirit of the Lord takes occupancy in us and is searching our thoughts looking for error, looking for impurity, looking for the pretense to greed, looking for all of those, looking for the tendency to want to flatter, looking for moments in our lives where we desire vain glory. The reason that the heart has been tested is because the spirit of the Lord is in each one of us looking at areas where we don't quite match up to the message of the gospel, but not just pointing out our sin, but like a great building inspector saying, this, there's a crack in the foundation, and here's how you fix it. This is exactly what the Lord wants to do in our lives. You see, the gravity of the gospel is this. The gravity of the gospel points out sin, but then pulls us toward sanctification. The gravity of the gospel points out the natural response, but pulls us toward the spiritual response. Again, the natural response in light of many of the things that are happening in our city right now and in our world, the natural response for many of us as blood-bought Christians might be to do something that is un-gospel-centered. But the gravity of the gospel pulls us from the natural response to a more spiritual response. But also, the Bible does this. The gravity of the gospel pulls us from the typical way that we might react to a biblical way. And so for those who might be inclined to pick up a brick, the sanctification and the the spirit of the Lord pulls us back from that. For those that might be inclined to just sit on the couch and just wait for Christ to come in the clouds, the Bible says that's, that's your native way of reacting, but that's not necessarily the spiritual or the biblical way. Let's look at the scriptures and see what the gravity of the gospel is pulling us toward. And so... When we talk about the gravity of the gospel, here's what I'd like for us to know. The gravity of the gospel, if you notice, looks at all of these different things in our lives, again, the pretense for greed, uh, maybe the tendency to wanna please others, and it gives us what I would call the counterbalance for those things. The gravity of the gospel serves as a counterbalance for our character, because without that counterbalance, through the boldness of the gospel, we would become loose cannons. Well, what else has God done in the scriptures? Well, there's a third characteristic of the gospel that I want you to pay close attention to. In verses 7 through 12, look carefully. Paul says, But we were gentle. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, and we were ready to share with you Not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. As we read through verses 9 through 12, you'll notice that there are three prevailing analogies that Paul uses to define how they came into preaching and and connecting with the Thessalonican believers. And the ways are modeled this way. He says we came as a mother, we came as brothers, and we came as a father. If you look here in verse 9, it says, Remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked day and night that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. And then look at verse, skip down to verse 11. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a way that was worthy of God, who calls you into his own glory and kingdom. If you notice that, you'll notice that not only does the Bible give those who, or the gospel give those who have it working within them a certain grittiness or boldness, but it gives us also a certain gravity. But if you look at this particular uh, stretch of text, it also gives us a certain grace. The gospel gives us a grace. There is a grace to the gospel. Now, what is the grace of the gospel? The grace of the gospel is defined by there are moments when we need to be more like a mother, nourishing, ensuring compassion. There are times when we need to be like a brother to come alongside, and there are times when we need to be like a father who's creating a culture of accountability, charging, and exhorting. The grace of the gospel gives us the ability to be all those things. Many of the conversations that I've heard about the gospel and in light of uh, what's happening in our city have really treated the gospel like it's some kind of magic wand. You just say it and wave it over the culture and things magically change. But I believe, based on what I see in the Bible and the life of Paul and Silas and others like them, and even our Lord Jesus Christ, that the gospel is not a magic wand. It would be more uh, more akin to a Swiss army knife. Don't know if you've ever seen one, but growing up as a child, having a pocket knife was one of my great fascinations. Everybody wanted to be a Cub Scout or a Boy Scout because part of the uniform was you got a pocket knife. And the, 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 the top of the food chain amongst pocket knives was the Swiss Army knife because included within it was all these special uh, uh, attachments that could uh, make the knife suitable for every situation. A screwdriver, a corkscrew, uh, a a blade, a serrated edge, a smooth edge, uh, uh, any number of things that you need to do, even a nail clipper, uh, if you will. The gospel is more akin to a Swiss Army knife than it is a magic wand. It's not enough to sit back and just say, this is all going to be okay if we just say the gospel words over it, like sprinkling it as if though it were fairy dust. There is real gospel work that should be happening both in us, in us as, as believers, and in us as a church in our respective contexts. Look at what Paul says with the great work that they did when they were there at Thessalonica. At the, at Thessalonica. It says, um, so to some of you, we came like a mother. Well, what was the marker of being a mother? He said that they were gentle in verse seven, they were gentle. Why do we need to be gentle? Because in response to what's happening in our world right now, the gospel action that's needed is a demonstration of care and compassion and transparency that comes alongside our theology. Where do we get that from? Look back at verse seven again. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you, here it is, not only the gospel, we didn't just preach at you, we didn't just give you sound theology, we didn't just give you the gospel of God, but we also gave our own lives because you had become very dear to us. If we care deeply about people around us, if we care deeply about what's happening in the world around us, we won't just preach to it, we'll care for it, we'll actually give life to it. This is what the Bible says. But not only should we uh, come in with a a, a spirit of gentleness when the moment calls for that, compassion, transparency, along with our theology, but the Bible also says in verse 9, remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Sometimes uh, the, the call isn't for gentleness and nurturing. We need someone to come alongside. And so these same brothers were compelled by the grace of the gospel to pivot and be like brothers who said, look at our labor and our toil. We worked alongside you so that you wouldn't be burdened by our presence. And sometimes that's what we need. The gospel can give us the grace to be gentle like a mother, to partner like a brother, because some people need to see our energy and our example alongside our exposition of the truth. Not only that, look at verse 11. It says, For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, then he gives us uh, the next family analogy, that the gospel also, when at work for some will allow us to be like a mother, for others will call us to be like a brother, and for others will yet call us to be like a father. Why? Because some need to be challenged to walk out their faith while waiting for the appearance of the author and finisher of our faith. Notice that they are told that, that, that you're going to walk into the kingdom of, your, of, your, of, your, of, your, of God's glory, but you need to walk in a certain way in anticipation of that. I want to encourage us, um, gospel hope in these days, to fully benefit during this this time of waiting, fully benefit from the grittiness of the gospel, which gives us boldness to be countercultural. I want to encourage us to fully benefit from and, and feel the work of the gravity of the gospel so that we aren't just out there with tons of energy with no counterbalance, because we need the counterbalance of the gospel for our character so that our natural inclinations don't take over and we just try to brand them as Christian efforts. But at the same time, we need counterintuitive flexibility, and this comes from the grace of the gospel, for meeting people and their needs right where they are. Paul expressed his great flexibility in the gospel this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, though I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one who is outside the law, not going uh, outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those who are outside the law." To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Notice that the apostle Paul understood that simply standing from his cultural perch and preaching toward the problem was not enough. He says he became all things to all men that not only that he might save some and in doing it share in their sufferings but also share in their perspective but ultimately to share in the blessings of the gospel. Where would Paul get such a notion? I think he may have gotten it from Jesus. The Bible tells us in the same posture was had by our Savior in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he were a son, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. And the scripture says it was fitting for the author and finisher of our salvation to actually be perfected through the things that he suffered and underwent as he wore this fleshly uh, body and took on the likeness of human flesh. You understand that Jesus himself thought it was necessary to wear the circumstances, to feel the pain and the situation of those that he came to save. And so my encouragement for us today is I don't know what your emotional leanings have been, what your theological leanings have been, where maybe your heart has told you to go when it comes to all this, I know that there's a great degree of frustration uh, of not knowing exactly what the right thing to do is. And as you've heard us say in some other settings, there is no broad brush thing to do other than to trust God and to wait on him. But to wait isn't like sitting on the sofa with the remote in our hand. To wait is to allow the gravity and the grit and the grace of the gospel to have its best effect on us. So within our respective context, We can see there are some that we need to have conversations with like a mother because they're hurting. There are some that we need to have action toward and conversations with and we need to labor next to them like a brother because they need our strength and energy. There are others who we need to have conversations with and efforts toward out of the energy of the gospel that charges them to move forward and to walk out their faith and not just live in the theory of the gospel. In all of these things, the ultimate end is to glorify God and to glorify God by being stewards who have been entrusted with the gospel. And those who have been entrusted with the gospel want the the, the essence of the gospel to be echoed in their lives. And the echoes of the gospel are righteousness. They are justice. They are peace. They are compassion, all of which are fruit that should aim our focus at our father in heaven gospel hope church um, i pray for you i pray for us and i pray for our country um, just during this time uh, i believe that our lord is sovereign and he is providential in how all things um, work themselves out i believe fully what the bible says that as we are watching unprecedented activity take place during our time in city do not neglect the gravity of the gospel to hold us down in times of uncertainty, the grit of the gospel to be bold and countercultural when necessary, but also the counterbalance of the gospel and the grace of the gospel that allows us to pivot and to be all things to all men in the moments that we need to be, but not just trying to be all things to all men to gain their, their flattery or their applause, but that we might gain their souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy, the wonderful work that you did through your son, Jesus Christ, that you then, Lord God, continued through your disciples, and now, Lord God, if we truly are those who love you, we have a great assignment before us. Beg and ask, O oh, holy God and Father, that you would show us exactly how to conduct ourselves in this time and season to walk worthy of you, those who you have promised a place in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.